There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 1980, Daniel Cohen, prolific author of Eerie Lore for Children, published the book Monsters You Never Heard Of. And several years later, I would come across that book in my elementary school's library when I was in the second grade. And it's probably still one of the most formatively influential books I've ever read. So when I think of the books that cemented and influenced my inescapable love of the horror genre at a very young age... I think of Stephen King's Night Shift. I think of the anthology Shudders, which I wrote about on my blog, on my personal site. Uh, The Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark book series. And two books by Daniel Cohen. Ghostly Terrors and the aforementioned Monsters You Never Heard Of. It was in this last book that I found out about things that these days might not be so unheard of. Time and the internet have cooperated to shed light on more cryptids and creatures that once upon a time were known largely just to the people of a certain location or culture. The Jersey Devil, for instance, the winged demon baby of Mother Leeds. Even though it directly inspired the name of an NHL team, I don't think most people outside of the New Jersey area, or at least the tri-state area maybe, would have known very much about it, if anything about it at all, uh, regarding this local legend around the time that Cohen's book was being written and published, or back when I first read it, even for that matter. Since then, however, the Jersey Devil has made several appearances in various works of pop culture, featuring in things ranging from an X-Files episode to, more recently, an episode of Aaron Menke's well-known and very good podcast, Lore. Another subject of the book was covered in a different podcast recently. The Dark Histories podcast, another really good podcast that I would highly recommend, uh, dedicated a recent episode to the Hairy Hands of Dartmoor, which nowadays, like the Jersey Devil, has its own Wikipedia page and no shortage of other pages and videos online devoted to that particular legend. When I read Cohen's book, however... Uh, your chances of being aware of the phantom hands that steer motorists into accidents um, on this stretch of road out in the countryside of England grew exponentially slimmer the farther away you got from the English county of Devonshire. Unless you happened upon a book specifically devoted to little-known local lore that happened to capture that story the way that I did, uh, it would not be something that you'd have ever heard of, just as the, the cover of the book, the title of the book, rather, would uh, indicate. And this all ties into a fear of the unknown, and fearing the unknown can come in many different forms and cross over with many other fears. Fearing the dark, for example, we 
talked about that in uh, an earlier episode of this podcast. And that fear of the dark can be directly tied to our fear of the unknown, fear of what we cannot see. You can be afraid as well of the uncertainty of the future, not knowing what is going to happen next. And in the previous episode, I covered a fear of trusting someone, and that can be rooted in not knowing exactly what's on their mind and the unknown of what's potentially in their heart. And then there's a somewhat more direct level of the unknown, at least compared to some of the things I just mentioned a moment ago. Monsters, demons, ghouls, ghosts, even gods that, according to lore or tradition or the religions of various regions and cultures, uh, these things that have been around for a very, very long time but might have escaped your attention. And it may seem silly to be scared of the idea of something existing without our knowledge, but of course what we don't know can hurt us. We're dealing with that presently all around the world. Had we known about the potential of the current strand of coronavirus years in advance, and in particular, uh, had we known when and where it would first spread into human beings, we could have had treatments or a vaccine on deck so far ahead of time that the current failures to react in a timely and effective manner wouldn't have even mattered or even been possible. But here we are, yes, in large part due to said failures, but also because partly we didn't know this specific monster was out there. It was an unknown and it has come back to haunt us. Now, on the lighter side of things, at least compared to real-world pandemics, uh, there are the unusual beasts, oddities, and evils of lore and other forms of fiction. Beyond the Jersey Devil and the ghost hands of the uh, road in Dartmoor, Cohen's book introduced me to other creatures, such as Spring-Heeled Jack and the Dover Demon. The former... Uh, was a very strange, high-jumping, demonic humanoid that terrorized Victorian-era Brits, and the latter was more of a gray alien sort spotted in Dover, Massachusetts in the 1970s. And while I had also already read about phantom dogs before I read Cohen's book, there was a chapter, a good chapter, in his book dedicated not only to phantom dogs, but also to something that was brand new to me at the time, the mysterious phantom wildcats, also known as ABCs or alien big cats, that have been sighted in various parts of the world but are a significant part of British cryptid folklore. The unexplained, unknown, and unknowable aspects of all of these creatures captivated me. I had and still have a lot of love for more familiar monsters such as vampires and werewolves and zombies, but even they gradually became more interesting and more frightening to me as I read more about them and learned how much I didn't really already know about them and about their history in particular. A lot of their history, in fact, is quite recent, or at least a lot of what we think of as the long-term history for some of these creatures. Vampires, for instance, are famously susceptible to sunlight, but a growing number of people over the years have become more and more aware that this was a relatively recent invention in the long, long history of vampire lore. Until the film, the, the silent film, Nosferatu, uh, the idea of vampires bursting into flames in the daylight was not part of classically European vampire mythology. And then beyond just that region, of course, there are assorted vampiric creatures from other parts of the world, and 
even within the specific cultures of the Western world, who aren't combustible to uh, exposure to sunlight or don't prove combustible when they're exposed to sunlight. And going beyond the sunlight thing, even, uh, for the European vampires, even if we want to just narrow it down to them, they weren't always vulnerable to wooden stakes or garlic either. I have a few different books on old vampire lore, and in reading them, one of the things that stands out to me is how much uncertainty and conflicting information there was, and, you know, no longer is, but once upon a time there was, about how to actually kill them and about what constituted a vampire uh, in general. And this was, you know, reflecting what people really thought about them at a time when they truly believed in vampires and there was still so much uncertainty around them. In America alone, during the New England vampire panics, many different solutions were proposed for killing a vampire or for stopping the dead from rising again to afflict others. And in Europe as well, there were a variety of methods employed to kill a vampire. Often, these methods were combined as if they were just throwing everything they knew at the wall to see what stuck. A corpse might be exhumed to be turned face down in his grave, as was directed, but then they would also potentially put a metal stake through it in order to pin it down while it's face down. Or a body might be decapitated and have its heart removed and then have the heart burned to ashes. And in, in at least one case, uh, even had those ashes mixed into uh, an elixir to be drunk by the still living family member in order to ward off future vampire attacks. And you could very easily, again, get the impression reading through these accounts that people weren't trying all of these things out because they believed that they were all necessary for them to be able to kill or stop a vampire, but because they were hoping that any single one of them might be the right thing to do in order to prevent a vampire from rising again. Another thing that jumped out at me as I read about older vampire lore was how much overlap there seemed to be between vampires and other shapeshifters and witches. Even the process for becoming a vampire often wasn't as direct as just being bitten by another vampire and having the curse transferred onto you and it's sort of a, a disease carrier transferring off a disease, that sort of methodology. There were rituals involved. There was an entire process. You, for instance, in one uh, example I read, needed to drink blood from a specific type and number of innocents and you had to drink it at a specific time and place, in this case, just before the commencement of mass. So much of this is very deliberate and thorough in terms of knowing all the precise information that you need and the locations where you need to be at. It gives you so much information there, and yet it all comes across ultimately as a bunch of hearsay, which makes sense considering you're dealing with monsters that, if they were real, would be very efficient killers and also very protective of their secrets, thus making it very hard to get any reliable first-hand information from survivors and of course no information from vampires themselves. This is all tied to another element of the unknown and it kind of links it back to the topic of real-world disease again. Vampirism in certain parts of the world was a way to explain the spread of certain illnesses that people otherwise had no real information on. They didn't know and in many cases had no real way of knowing at the time how these diseases spread. So they conjured 
convoluted and inconsistent mythology to pass as an explanation. Similarly, werewolf mythology often acted as an explanation for certain murderous, monstrous behavior as well as animal attacks. And like vampires, they have a relatively recently created weakness. Uh, the werewolf's vulnerability to silver bullets is much more of a recent invention compared to how long the legend of the werewolf has been around. An episode of the Monster Talk podcast titled A Wolf in the Fold breaks down the origin of the silver bullet as a weapon against evil rather exhaustively. And ultimately, the silver bullet just kind of ends up as a helpful story device that provides a weakness to an enemy that is otherwise much more difficult to kill. It seems to be a way of lessening the horror of this type of monster, making it a little bit more palatable. It's part of the concrete quote-unquote rules established for these creatures, ranging from how you become one to how you kill one, that picks specific pieces of all the rumors and conjectures and establishes them as facts. This is the canon, these are the knowns about them, therefore eliminating the unknown, because leaving it as an unknown, even in such small doses, is thought to be a bit more than the average audience member could potentially handle. But even with these classic creatures with seemingly simple weaknesses, there are atypical accounts of them that can make them even more menacing than they appear to be in more formulaic stories. Just outside of my current home in San Antonio is a town that houses the high school that I actually went to, Converse, Texas. It's effectively part of the San Antonio area nowadays and has been for as long as I've lived in the area. But in the mid-19th century or so, uh, San Antonio itself wasn't nearly as populous as it is today, to say nothing of a town like Converse. And that's supposedly the era we'd have to go back to in order to see the Converse werewolf, an eight-foot-tall, muscular, bipedal monster that, according to very little-known legend, once killed a rancher's son. I first heard about the Converse Werewolf when I was much younger, way back in the tail end of the 90s, right around the time that the Blair Witch Project had come out. And I remember this specifically because my very young, very naive, and very eager self thought, you know, if I just uh, had a camera, then me and a few of my friends could go out to the more remote parts of Converse, find some remote part of Converse, pretend to get lost in the woods, and have our own little mega-hit indie movie with an astronomic return on investment. Because who wouldn't want to see our movie about the legend of the Converse werewolf? Sure, it's an obscure story dating back to the 1800s, but that didn't mean the werewolf couldn't still be alive, did it? Because... If you go ahead and do an internet search of whether or not werewolves die of old age, you'll have a lot of fun, potentially, reading a lot of unsighted, inexpert, yet very confident opinions about a folkloric beast. When you look at some of the older tales from the time when people believed in such things, it appears that something like the lifespan of a werewolf wasn't explored for a couple of reasons. Firstly, 
Werewolves in some parts of the world weren't entirely their own entity. Lycanthropy was either an offshoot of witchcraft or vampirism, and as I mentioned earlier, vampirism itself was sometimes just an offshoot of witchcraft. Secondly, werewolves often met an abrupt and violent end, or kept their distance and remained a mystery. Either way, the longevity wasn't contemplated nearly as much as the objectives of either killing them or avoiding them. So, maybe I or some other young, intrepid, decidedly amateur, very, very amateur filmmaker could have sold audiences on the idea of the Converse werewolf being hundreds of years old and still being out there. And if not, my city had other monsters and has other monsters that most people outside of the city limits of San Antonio have never heard of. The Donkey Lady, for instance, who has a bridge named after her, legitimately named after her. If you type Donkey Lady Bridge into your map service right now, you will get a precise location that you can come to. She is, in some grimmer cases, figuratively, and in some lighter cases, literally, exactly what her name suggests. A legendary woman who, through very unfortunate circumstances, came to partially resemble a donkey. In what I think is the more unpleasant version of the tale, this quote-unquote resemblance is a result of horrific burns that she suffered because of a house fire. She survives, but she's uh, injured in ways that, I guess, kind of make her resemble a donkey. Again, I, I kind of find that's, that version of the story a little bit unsavory, and it also is a little bit nonsensical. I mean, relatively speaking, we're talking about something called the donkey lady here. In a different version, she was a woman crossing the bridge on her donkey who, for one reason or another, the woman, uh, she fell over the bridge and died along with the animal. And her spirit came back as a sort of fusion of herself and the donkey to become this brand new creature. At least that's how I've heard it. Others, I'm sure, have heard other variations of the tale as well. We could probably all agree, though, regardless of the origin stories, the different types of origin stories about this that we might have heard living in this city, that the donkey lady is said to occasionally attack cars and people who cross her bridge. She's a familiar type of monster in that way. Monsters lurking under bridges and attacking travelers that cross them seem to have been around for as long as stories have been around. Yet, imagine being alone, driving through the city, maybe new in town or a tourist driving over a short bridge that doesn't look any different from any other that you've crossed in your time here and then out of nowhere you are under attack your vehicle is beaten by a hooved half-human monster making noises you can't even begin to place it pounds on and dents your doors it cracks the windows it seems like it's going to get inside it's going to get to you. You mash the gas, you get the hell off the bridge. And not until you feel certain that you're a safe distance from that bridge and from whatever it is that attacked you, maybe minutes later, do you stop and truly try to comprehend what was that thing? Well, it's just one of countless local, largely unknown monsters said to inhabit Texas and Taking a wider view, you have such monsters all over the country and all over this hemisphere and all over the world. Things that represent our fears associated with 
new discoveries and exploration, or with simply trying to survive the night, dating back to a time when the light of a torch only extended so far, and you couldn't be sure of what might be out there in the dark just a few feet beyond the dim glow. The planet is full of monsters we've never heard of, whose origins range from times long, long past to much more recent eras. The internet has produced many such creatures that, one or two hundred years from now, presuming humanity itself isn't mostly a myth by then, might have their own origins and characteristics muddied and blurred. Many of these creatures, whether they are old favorites or brand new inventions, have largely unknown qualities. Among the devils that we think we know but really don't are previously unheard of or obscure dangers waiting to be awakened or unearthed one way or another. Sometimes simply because the time has come again for them to wake up and roam and rampage. Other times because someone, somewhere, opened a door that should have stayed shut or picked a lock that was there for a very long time for a very good reason or dug too deep in the wrong place. Now, every once in a while, I like to detour a little farther from the beaten path on this podcast, down roads less traveled, and what better time to do it than when talking about our fear of the unknown, and in particular, unknown or lesser known monsters. After last week, where my primary subjects were a very recent and popular Netflix series, and then a movie that is terribly underseen, granted, but not completely unknown, I am feeling a little bit antsy to talk about something that may be even more off the radar for most people and even possibly most horror fans. And I get to spread the podcast's subject matter beyond the types of media that I've already covered previously, so that's an added bonus here as well. Because in the summer of 1948, televisions were still very uncommon in the average household, so if you weren't going to the movies, you were maybe gathering with the family in the living room to enjoy some external broadcast entertainment, you were just listening to the radio. And if you wanted to hear something scary, one of your most reliable purveyors of audio horror was a program called Quiet Please. And in August of 1948, they released one of their best and most enduring episodes about a monster absolutely no one had ever heard of before. The thing on the formal board. The first question you might have is not necessarily what could the thing on the formal board be, but what the hell is a formal board? Well, they tell you right there in the story, but in case you haven't heard it before, a formal board is a platform on an oil drilling derrick that is four lengths up from the derrick floor, at least. That's according to the man telling the story. One length is just called one length, and two lengths is called a double. Three lengths is called a treble, so four is a forble, hence forble board. One length also amounts to 20 feet, so that, when you do the math, puts this platform up at 80 feet high, which is plenty high enough, thank you kindly, for somebody like me who doesn't care for unenclosed heights. But... It's nothing compared to the depths being reached beneath the oil derrick in this story. You can likely see where the story is headed based on its title, the oil derrick setup, and the explanation of what a formal board is. 
Early in the story, the narrator briefly describes the purpose of a hollow coring drill and paints a picture of thousands of feet beneath the earth being driven through and brought up through that coring drill. So from there, the story heads sort of where you think it's headed, save for a compound swerve saved for the very end of the episode and the utterly bizarre characteristics of the thing that gets brought up from underground. Now a little bit of a background in my just general perspective on something that I'm, I'm pretty into, Golden Age radio horror stories. At least I have a dilettante's level of interest in it. I'm not going to claim to be an expert, but many Golden Age radio stories that I've listened to follow a more traditional and familiar path than what you would find in The Thing on the Forble Board. They go out of their way to stick to that path, if that makes sense. And even if they have to defy plot or character logic to stay on course, they will do so. And that's part of what I enjoy about them. If you need a couple of old ladies to board a doomed phantom cruise liner so that they can eventually get their comeuppance, and there are no other passengers present on that cruise liner, well, what do you do? You just have them barely question the fact that there's no other passengers on board the ship, and board anyway. If you need a group of friends to be left alone with a man who fits the exact description of an escaped murderer that they just heard about on an emergency broadcast a few minutes earlier, it feels like, what do you do? Well, you have everyone except for one woman out of the group completely forget about the emergency broadcast and the aforementioned description of the escaped killer. In fact, many old-time radio horror stories just force progression by simply having a husband or boyfriend character who is obstinate, oblivious, and stupidly fearless until it's too late. Or, or rather in addition to that, and coupled with that in a literal sense, they'll have a wife or girlfriend character who is observant and cautious but is largely ignored until it's too late. Likewise, many old-time radio stories, radio horror stories, revolve around standard horror villains and plotlines. Ghosts seeking revenge, vampires or werewolves looking to feed and or spread their curse, murderers and criminals and other petty nuisances who find themselves victims of karmic comeuppance. Some stories are so, pre so predictable that the title tells you everything you need to know from the personality of the main character to the plot developments to the final twist. A story called Where the Dead Man's Coat is going to deliver exactly what you expect of it, and that is not a criticism, by the way. Many of these stories appeal to me because of their throwback simplicity and directness. They're fun little reminders of my entry points into the horror genre. It can also make for an interesting way to experience an adaptation. I love the radio adaptation of the short story 3 Duma Key. In particular, they've, they've done multiple adaptations of this, but the ones featuring Vincent Price... I really love those in part because you're largely forced still to imagine much of the story. There's so much that is unknown to you mentally that you're having to paint the picture of as best as you can in your mind, uh, just as it is when the story is on the page, except for you're getting it wonderfully narrated to you. This as opposed to getting visuals for it as you would with a television or film adaptation, which one eliminates some component of that unknown, but two, you know, from a practical sense, um, 
Three Doom McKee is a story about a lighthouse being overrun by a massive legion of rats that have come to the rock island where the lighthouse is by way of a ship that they had already infested. Massive rat infestation is one of those things that's proven too difficult for either practical effects or CGI to properly capture, so I feel it's better suited to a, an audio format or just leaving it on the page. Now, as fun as it can be to listen to these types of stories, it can be even more fun to hear one that is more unconventional, which I suppose could be said of just about any other horror story in any other medium, but many of my favorite horror stories aren't all that unconventional at all when you get to the nuts and bolts of them. Halloween, for instance, is a pretty straightforward story about a spree killer, just executed extremely well. Uh, Salem's Lot is a story about vampires overrunning a town. I love it. I truly, truly adore it, but nothing about it is particularly off the wall. Now, speaking of walls, as I exhibit my mastery of the segue, uh, you have something like the Lights Out story, the Golden Age radio horror story, Come to the Bank, which is about a woman who finds a man stuck inside a wall of a bank. How did he get there? What's going to happen to him? The setup is very unusual, and it's a very memorable story. And sticking within this same medium, a famous story for its genre and for that medium and for the time and place, is the story The Dark, which features an inexplicable creeping living shadow slash fog that, once it envelops you, turns you inside out. Yes, the fog that gets parodied in that classic Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode. And the original recording of that uh, radio show episode, The Dark, unfortunately has been lost to time, but a re-recorded version can still be found out there, and it is genuinely unsettling to listen to, despite, or maybe even because of, the spare yet bizarre and a little bit absurd premise. And all of that brings me back, finally, to The Thing on the Forbal Board. Again, the setup and the title are giveaways to a certain degree, but they don't give away the most memorable parts of the story. And yes, I'm going to be giving away those things here, so last chance for you to listen to it yourself before I get into it. And if I may make an unsponsored, sincere recommendation, Relic Radio has put out a very efficient and reliable old-time radio horror podcast for years now, simply titled The Horror, with an exclamation mark at the end, and you can listen to this story there. Okay, what is the thing on the Forbal board? Well, for the overwhelming majority of the episode, we don't know, in part because the thing is invisible unless it's covered in something, mud, paint, we find out, anything that can be used to cover it to make it visible. It's similar to the Predator in that respect. And that's just one of its many, many peculiar qualities. We are scratching the surface here. The first glimpse we get of this thing is not of the entire creature itself, but of a lost body part, a finger that has uh, that gets found uh, on the oil derrick. And that finger appears to be, and, and feels like it, is made of stone. So this thing that has been cored out of the depths of the earth by mistake is made of living rock, and it can't be seen once it's cleaned off. It can only be seen if it's covered in something. After the thing on the forbal board is seemingly responsible for some accidents that 
uh, have some gruesome results. A roughneck named Porky, the person who is our narrator for the story, who is speaking directly to the audience in the fashion of many old-school radio horror stories, uh, Porky finds himself alone with the creature on the forble board one day. At first, he can't see it. He can only hear its cries, which are shrill and almost baby-like, but not quite. They're somewhat alien and whining as well. And it's almost comical when you hear it on the episode, except it's a little bit too strange to be comical, at least in my opinion. Weirdly inspired choice for an imaginary dangerous animal. And the weirdly inspired choices are still going to pile up a bit from here. So finally, Porky throws a bucket of red paint over the creature so he can see it. And what does he see? He sees this thing that has the hands of a human being and the face of a human being, but in particular the face of a small child or a girl, uh, a young girl. And again, still made of stone. All of this is a stone facade, but this is the creature's appearance. But I've just talked about the face and hands so far. Its body, its torso, is that of a giant spider. So, let's add up all of these separate parts to get to the sum of this nightmarish thing. It is a monster made of stone that is invisible unless it is painted over in some way. It has the face of a young girl and a voice like a screeching bird is doing an impression of a human infant and the body of a monstrously overgrown spider. And then the final vital piece of information we get about it, which by the time we receive that information, um, while it cements its status as a threat, almost feels mundane, is that it is carnivorous. This chimeric combination of features is worthy of something from ancient mythologies. It's like whatever Greek or Mesopotamian god cooked it up, did so by accident after several ingredients that didn't belong spilled into the pot. It is as if someone slipped evolution, some potent drugs. It is senseless madness. It is shocking. And it is, after all this time since the episode was first produced, almost laughable when you think about it, except if you had to truly imagine yourself alone with such an abomination, you'd probably have to admit that your brain might short-circuit at the sight and sound of something so blatantly wrong. And it is definitely something unknown. It is something that no one had ever heard of until someone was inspired to create it. And if your mind tracks along the same paths that mine does when you hear about something like this or you read a story featuring a creature like this, uh, what you learn about the thing just introduces additional questions that spotlight more of the unknowns about its existence and presence. For instance, are its face and infantile cries used to lure in prey? Where it's from? Uh, is it used to garner sympathy, as it shockingly does to Porky as part of the uh, revelation at the end um, tells us, it shows us. What about its stone skin and invisibility? These could be useful for attacking purposes, of course, but seem even more beneficial as defense mechanisms. Could this mean that this isn't the apex predator of its environment? Is there something else that it has to 
look out for and hide from deep, deep, deep in the subterrain? What other and potentially worse horrors we've never heard of live down with this thing a mile or more under our feet? And at this point, admittedly, I might have thought more and longer about this thing than the person who actually created it ever did. Or perhaps not. Either way, he did his job very well, imagining a creature whose knowns, and in particular, whose unknowns, spur further imagining, wonder, and dread. Thank you for listening to episode 8 of the Healthy Fears podcast. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave a review if your podcasting platform encourages and allows such interactivity. Recommend to a friend. And if you would like to read anything that I've written, whether it's any of my short fiction or anything else that's uh, been on my mind that I wanted to share with the world in the written form, you can check it out on my personal website, johnnycompton.com. After this episode, I'm going to be resuming my typical intended schedule of every other week. So I hope you enjoyed the back-to-back, so to speak, episodes this time around to make up for the extra time between episodes six and seven. So I'll speak to you again in two weeks for episode nine, and then two weeks after that for episode 10. And that should bring us right to the doorstep of October. And I do have some things in mind and in the works for the Halloween season, as I like to call it, and I'm sure many other people like to call it. Stick around for that, and I hope you'll enjoy it. In the meantime, one way or another, Maybe try to find out something new about something that scares you. I can't promise that it's going to make you any less afraid, but generally speaking, what you do know can't hurt you any more than what you don't know. Right? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.